Any more announcements and our, our lighting of the candle? We're going to do it a little differently this year. We have it on video for you, so I want you to turn your attention up to the screen. Hi, Seacoast! Welcome! We are the Herman family. I'm Brett. I'm Kobe. I'm Joey. I'm Devin. We want to say hi from our home. Hey, as we begin the Advent season, we want to draw our attention to hope. Isaiah 9-2, the people who walk in darkness will see great light. Those who live in, in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase the gladness. They will be glad in, in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For a child will be born to a son, a son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, and Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This candle represents hope we have in Jesus Christ our Lord. It is the hope in which the prophets spoke and the hope that is the fulfillment of all scripture. Merry Christmas! <laughs> Leave it to the Herman family, huh? You got <laughs> uh, I love it. I think that's our first ca Advent candle lighting that ended in a pillow fight. But uh, one of our theme this year as we enter our Advent season is called Home for Christmas. So what we want to do is every week you'll see someone from someone's home as we uh, read the, the Advent uh, scripture for the day and we'll light the candle and just symbolizing this idea of home for Christmas. Now, if you think of, for you, think of your life, and, and what's the image that comes to mind when you think of being home for Christmas? Uh, many of us, it, it probably has something to do with our childhood, and, and I want to just recognize at the beginning, some of you, maybe it's not a good vision if you think of what Christmas was like for you, uh, but for many of us, we have this image of kind of the idyllic, the idyllic Christian, or Christmas of what that looks like based on your childhood. I know my very early days... Both of my grandparents had farms in northern Minnesota. And so for me, Christmas, like when I'd watch Christmas movies and cartoons and stuff, that, that looked right. There was always snow. It was always cold. And that, that just kind of made sense. And uh, so that was my early views of Christmas. And when you go to celebrate Christmas in northern Minnesota, you're never dreaming of a white Christmas. You, you don't have to. You, you dream of the snowplow showing up in time so you could uh, get down the road. And I, I remember going to uh, in one of my grandparents' house. We would go there often on Christmas Eve, and uh, we'd come off the highway, and you could see their farm in the distance, and the silos were in the, you could see them from the highway, and you turn off the road, and all of a sudden you're on this dirt road, which is covered with snow, and the snow banks would go up high on each side. And as you drive down uh, the, the road, it was two corners. They measure everything by corners on the dirt road, not, not distance. And so you'd go two corners to my grandparents' house, pull into the driveway, and often when you'd walk in the house, 
It'd be warm. There'd be something, some kind of meat roasting in the oven. There were people everywhere. I'm told they're my cousins and aunts and uncles. I don't know. There's too many of them uh, to keep track. But that was the view of Christmas for me. It was just that that's what felt like Christmas. As, as my dad being in the military, we moved around often. I remember being transferred to the Presidio in San Francisco and thinking our first Christmas without snow, it was kind of strange. It, it was warm. That doesn't make sense. And uh, eventually my parents got transferred up to uh, Washington State and where they've retired. So my kids grew up seeing Christmas. It wasn't snowbanks, it was rain, but it was still cold and wet, and that felt like Christmas. Going around the corner into my parents' house, you'd see their trees lit up, and my parents overdo it for Christmas. And they're probably watching right now. You know you do. So. But then we'd enter into my mom's house, and she uh, decorates more than even Nordstrom's does for Christmas. Some of you, maybe, you know, I, I think there's years when Nordstrom's calls her and says, hey, we're out of stuff. Do you have any decorations? She has them. But for my kids, that was a picture of what Christmas is supposed to look like. And when that gets disrupted, something feels off. I remember the year when we were living overseas. We were living in Israel with my wife and three kids. Israel, being a Jewish nation, doesn't do much to celebrate Christmas. Let me just say that. In fact, I had class on Christmas Day when I was studying at the Hebrew University there. And I remember that feeling of it just doesn't, something feels a little off. I would often walk into the big churches in Jerusalem during Christmas season just to see decorations put up. Just for a little taste of home. I even remember uh, before, a couple weeks before Christmas, we traveled to the country of Jordan, which also isn't a Christian nation, but they like tourists. So we got to Jordan. We went into our hotel, and in the lobby, they had this giant Christmas tree decorated. I remember looking at my boys who just walked over to it and sat beside it staring at the tree. I could tell that inside them, they were just thinking, this feels closer to the way it should be. This feels like home for Christmas. You know, the, the reason we're doing this theme of Home for Christmas this year is not to study the story, and we're not going to go through every little part of the Christmas story this year, but we're going to take a deeper dive and ask the questions of why is the Christmas story even in the Bible? Why did Jesus come and make his home among us? Why is this idea of, of Christmas even, why did it need to happen? And today what we're going to start with is this idea of we all have that picture of what home should feel like, but when it's off, we know it's off. And Jesus entered the world into a time in history when it was off, when people felt like things are not as they should be. And even for us today, every time we see the pain and hurt in the world, Every time we see that things, that we experience broken relationships, we get the sense that things are a little bit off. And so what we want to study today is, what, how does Jesus coming to be with us start to answer that question? How does he address the idea that things are not as they should be? And so that's what we're going to look at today. I want to invite you to pray with me as we jump in. So pray as we look at the, uh, start our message. God, we thank you so much for today, and we pray, Lord, that as we study this story of Christmas, of actually the, the theology behind it, the reason it even is in here, God, would you awaken our hearts to the truth of who you are? Would you awaken our hearts to how good you are? 
Lord, and that this story is incredible, that a God who created us, a God who loves us, cares enough to enter in. And so, Lord, today there's some who come, and this season brings pain. Maybe it's pain because it's memories that, uh, uh, of broken home. Maybe it's pain because it's, it's the first Christmas or second Christmas where they're alone without a loved one, and those memories are very real. God, this season often brings up loneliness for some. and So God, would you meet each one of us where we're at? Even for those that this year, maybe there's a new marriage, maybe a new child. There's joy that's experienced. Would you meet us in that joy? And above all, Lord, when we look at the story, may we bend our knees and worship wherever we're at and turn our hearts to you. So we thank you now and ask you to change us, shape us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be in a few different places today, um, but I'm going to start in Luke chapter 2 for those of you who like to follow along, and I'll have some of these verses on the screen for you. But what we're going to do, as I mentioned today, is we're looking at this idea, first of all. Today, the question we want to address is why the Christmas story? Why would Jesus come in the first place? Next week, we're actually going to look at this. It's kind of a big churchy word, the the incarnation, and this idea that God became flesh. And we're going to kind of look at the theology of what does that even mean, and what why did he do that? Why was that necessary? But this week, it's why is this story even in here? And, And why did it happen this way? So it starts here. Let's look at Luke chapter 2, verse 25. This is after Jesus had been born, and this is on the eighth day, so if you were a a devout Jewish family, you would take your uh, male child on the eighth day to the temple to be dedicated, and that's what's happening here in Luke chapter 2. So right after Jesus is born, it says, there's a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. He was looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And and that idea of the, the Lord's Christ means the Lord here in this case is Yahweh. This is the creator God, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the whole Bible, I should say, our creator God. And Christ essentially means the anointed one. It's the word we have for Messiah. So it's, he's, it's been revealed to him that he will see God's Messiah before he dies. Now he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to carry out the custom of the law, Simeon took him, him, the child, into his arms and blessed God and said this, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all the people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people, Israel. Now this little section of scripture after the birth of Jesus is just loaded with allusions to the Hebrew scriptures, to the Old Testament. It's loaded with language that helps us place the birth of Jesus into the whole narrative of scripture. See, we need to have this idea as as followers of Jesus, and if you are here and you're just seeking truth and you're not sure what you believe yet, we want you to understand too that the the story of, of, of Jesus isn't this random event, it's not a reboot of scripture. It's not the Old Testament, and, and that didn't work, so now we're going to do a New Testament, and we're going to start over. It's part of a narrative from the beginning to the end. 
And, and so Simeon, when he takes this child, Jesus, into his arms, it, it's just, there's all this language here that is pointing to the Hebrew Scriptures. First of all, we notice that he is looking for the consolation of Israel or the comfort of Israel. He's longing for Israel to be comforted. Now that's going to allude to, uh, we'll look in a moment, in uh, a passage in Isaiah. There's a couple. There's one in Isaiah chapter 42. They're looking for this consolation of Israel. And, and later we'll see another passage where God's saying, I'll come and comfort my people. So he's longing for his people to be comforted. So that's the first clue that there, he's connecting it to the whole biblical narrative. Now, when he picks up Jesus, so he's waiting for this Messiah that's been predicted and been talked about throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, that God would send an anointed one who will be the solution for all of our sin and pain in the world. We'll look at that in a moment. But then notice what he says. I can now depart in peace because my eyes have seen your salvation, God which is also play on words. The name Jesus is a word for salvation. So I've seen your Jesus. I've seen your salvation. I've seen your answer to the world's problems. He's holding him in his arms. And then he says this. This is the one you've prepared in the presence of all the people. A light of revelation to the Gentiles. So this child is going to be a light to the Gentiles meant to all the earth. It's pretty incredible that in the temple where they're worshiping God, in the temple that is focused it's on Jewish worship, he says, this child is for the whole world, which is fulfillment of Scripture. And then he said, it's the glory of your people, Israel. This is the one we've been waiting for. So in that moment, it said as people heard this, that they were knocked off their feet in Greek. As, the, the, as Mary and Joseph heard what he said, they were knocked off their feet. They, this revelation about Jesus just blew them away. But he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Let's look at a couple of those passages. I have them on the screen for you. This alluded to, as I said, a, a few prophecies that were written hundreds of years before. In Isaiah chapter 49, verse 13, it's talking about um, is the servant, which often is the metaphor for the Messiah. And in verse 6, it says, Is it a too small of thing for you to be my servant? This is a prophecy about a Messiah. You'll come and restore the tribes of Jacob. You'll bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. So again, Simeon is referring to this passage in Isaiah. He understands this is what we're looking for. This is what we're longing for. If you go down to verse 13 of Isaiah 49, it says this, Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains. For the Lord comforts his people, and he will have compassion on his afflicted ones. So again, what are they waiting for? They're waiting for consolation. They're waiting for comfort. And here in 49, Isaiah chapter 49 says, God's comforting his people. He's bringing something that will bring comfort and healing to them. So now here's the big question. Why did they need comfort? Why did we need a Messiah in the first place? What was so wrong, or why, what did the world, what was going on that we needed a Messiah to come and bring comfort? And that's what we want to address today. Why was something off? It didn't feel right, like being away from home for Christmas. And we need to go back. Again, you've heard us say this before if you've been at Seacoast, but it starts in the book of Genesis, which is the very beginning of the Bible. 
In fact, in Genesis chapter 3 is where all the problems begin. It's a story of Adam and Eve, and we see that they're placed in the garden, and they have this perfect relationship with God. There's no separation between God and man. The Garden of Eden is a symbol, and it's a picture of paradise. It's a picture of heaven. And they have everything that they want, everything that they need. This relationship with God, there's no brokenness in the relationship with one another. And, and, and this passage where God says, you can eat from any, everything you ever need is here for you. But the one thing I don't want you to do is to eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the one thing that Adam and Eve decided to do was to eat from the, t- knowledge, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now some of you would say, why would God create something that he didn't want them to have? Was it just because he's testing them? Well, I'm going to put this there. This is the best thing I have. And I just want to see if, how strong you are. Well, I don't think it's that. It's as we're reading this. And, and what it, it's really representing is, did mankind want to trust God's version of what is good and what is bad? Or did they want to start making that decisions for themselves? Were they going to trust God and his patterns? Or would they say, you know what? We've got other ideas that might work. In fact, in Hebrew, this, this tree of knowledge of good and evil means of bad and good, or, or tov and ra, it's good and bad, and, and the idea for them was, do you want your version of what is good and bad, or do you want God's version? And if you want your version, the ability to determine what is good and bad, that means you are deciding to be in the place of a judge. Here's the problem. We're not very good at being judges, are we? I mean, we try, but... We're not all-knowing. We're not perfect. We're not infinite as God is. So our judgments are always going to be flawed. They're always going to be imperfect. Would you agree? I know most of us think our own personal judgment is always flawless. I know. I get it. But it's not. And so the very first thing that we have as mankind says, no, we want to have that power that God has. To stand in the place of judgment and decide what is good and bad. And as soon as they eat of that fruit, which was it an apple? I don't know. Apples don't grow really well in the Middle East, so probably not. But they eat of a fruit, the symbol of taking from the knowledge of good and evil. And immediately, they looked at each other, and judgment was in their mind. We've told you this story before. One minute, they were naked and unashamed, and the next minute, you've heard me say it, they noticed they had love handles and sagging where they shouldn't be sagging because all they're making judgments now. And the first thing they felt was shame. I don't measure up. I'm not good enough. What if you don't like me? What if you think I'm not enough for you? All of a sudden, the very result of wanting to be judged was that there is shame and there is just the brokenness in a relationship. And that's the beginning of the, the, what we call the fall. So God actually kicks mankind out of the Garden of Eden, which seems pretty harsh, doesn't it? God, you put the tree in there. Why are you kicking us out? We're told in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, it says this. God says, the man has become like us. So this is a hint of the Trinity, by the way. He's now knowing good and evil. And now he might reach out his hand and take from the fruit of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove man out. 
And he put an angel to protect and guard the way to the tree of life. So God kicks mankind out of, this, out of paradise so that we wouldn't take from the fruit in, of the tree of life and live forever. Harsh, yes? Or it was in an act of grace. See, what God said is, I don't want you to live forever in your broken relationships. If you eat from the tree of knowledge of good life, if you live forever now as sinful people where our relationship is broken, that's not for your good. So I'm actually going to, out of grace, take you out of the garden. Because I don't want you to live forever as broken people. But you're going to live for a season in a broken world now. So that's how we describe where sin and the fall, where it comes from. And ever since then, people have been sinful. You have been sinful. And, and I know some people say it's not fair that we have to pay the price for Adam's sins. Don't worry about it. You have plenty of your own. You don't have to blame Adam. And from that point, the world was broken. Now, what does God do? He, he calls the people to his own, the nation of Israel. He says, I want you to represent me to the rest of the world. I want you to show that even in a broken world that there's a better way. So he gives them uh, the law. Think of it as the Old Testament was often called the path of life. He said, if you walked in these ways where you honored God first and foremost, where you honored the Sabbath and your life was centered around God, there was no other idols. And then the way you treated people was you, you weren't taking from them. You weren't lying. And, you weren't, uh, it, it, and so there's this sexual ethic that was given to people. There was this ethic of not hating and not murder and not coveting and, and just having peace with one another. If we perfectly lived the path of life, it's a picture of the Garden of Eden where our relationships now with God and with one another are whole. But what's the problem? We didn't have the power to live the law perfectly. In fact, Paul said what the law did is just reminded us that we were sinful and fell short. So we still needed a solution. So the prophets began speaking and saying, we need a solution. And from the beginning, God's solution was, one day I will send the ultimate answer. It's going to be in the form of my son, and we're going to look at this next week. So uh, this week, I'm going to leave you hanging a little bit of why Jesus was the answer. But he comes in and, and is able to stand in the place of our sins, and also he's going to give us his spirit, which now gives us a new life, an ability to walk in this path of life that God has created for us. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33, God says this through the prophet, this is the covenant I make with those of the house of Israel after those days. Speaking of now when the Messiah comes. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their heart. I will be their God and they will be my people. They will not have to teach again each one to his neighbor and brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their wrongdoing and their sin I will remember no more. So we see, again, the scriptures are saying that I'm pointing to, in a broken world, I'm going to send my Messiah who's going to bring wholeness once again. Things are not as they should be, but I'm going to send a solution. So what we have now, the picture when the first Christmas in the first century, the Israelites were waiting for the Messiah. There had been 400 years from the last prophet to the time when Jesus came. That's a long time to wait, is it not? When you have little kids who are waiting for Christmas, the four weeks between Thanksgiving and Christmas is a long time. Can you imagine 400 years? Are we there yet, God? <laughs> are we there yet? 
are we there yet? Asking year after year. When will he come? We were taken over by the Babylonians and taken off into exile. We returned only to have the Persians over us and then to have the Greek empire over us. And now in the first century, we have the Roman empire over us. God, are we there yet? This is not how it should be. We're broken. Are we there yet? What are you going to do? And they were longing and waiting and waiting. Things were not as they should be. You know, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking uh, in every phase in the Old Testament when they're waiting for Jesus, when Jesus came in the first century, and even to this day, I've noticed that we typically respond two ways when we're now facing a world that's broken and not as it should be. There's really two common responses. They're not the only ones, but they're the most common I see. See, the people of Israel in the Old Testament, they were longing for God, waiting for him, but he wasn't coming, so they started turning their hearts to other idols. In fact, we have archaeologists have found right underneath the temple where the temple stood at the time of, of the Babylonian exile, so the most recent excavations that they have, they found there's idols to Baal and to Asherah. The very people who were worshiping Jesus were also in their pocket, had an idol to Baal, saying, just in case. I'm just going to add a little bit to my faith in God. In the first century, when Jesus actually came, the Roman Empire was, was uh, governing Israel. And even in the priesthood, the Sanhedrin, which was the leaders of the Jewish temple, they were giving their hearts to the Roman government. They were more political than they were turning people to the hearts of Jesus, or to the hearts of God. And what we see is when we're facing a world that's broken, that often people of faith were tempted with this first thing, and it's called syncretism. It means taking your faith, your belief in God, and adding the culture to it. And would you agree that that is a temptation that we see happening to this day? When we look around and we see how the world is telling us what makes sense, where to find purpose and hope, and, and a certain sexual ethic that you, you should have because this is the right way to live, and, and a certain, certain way of just accepting all things. That's, that's how we live now. And so people of faith are wrestling with this. How can I be Christian in a world with, with all of these competing worldviews? And let's be honest, a lot of Christians were, were struggling with it, and churches are actually, many of them, are adopting culture so much so that they didn't, won't stand out too much. We're making Jesus so nice. We want Jesus to be nice, don't we? We make him so nice that he has no more power. They did it in the Old Testament. They did it in the first century. We want to fit in. The world's broken. Let's just somehow make it make sense without being countercultural. That's the first temptation. The second temptation, if it's not syncretism, adding culture to your faith, it's isolationism. It's saying, okay, the world's so broken, what we're going to do is just disconnect altogether. We're going to run away. In the first century, there's a group called the Essenes, and I'm thankful for them because we believe they wrote most of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and so we have the Old Testament because of them. But what they did is they went out to the desert, and they hid in these holes and had a whole community and said, we don't want the world to mess us up. So we're just going to isolate, we're going to study scripture, and we're going to be disconnected from culture. And there's that temptation, isn't there? 
There are times you just want to, well, not move to a desert, though. That never tempted me ever. But yeah, maybe move to a cool beach somewhere (laughs) and isolate from everyone else and say, I'm just here to worship Jesus and wait for him to come. Please just, I want to disconnect from all culture. That sometimes sounds pretty good. But in the midst of that, what does God do? He comes in the form of flesh. And he doesn't syncretize their faith. He doesn't say, let's somehow make our faith work with culture. He says, oh, I'm bringing a radical new kingdom. And he doesn't isolate and say, we're going to run away from it. We're going to be right here in the middle of it. And Jesus said, and my kingdom is now at hand, and you're invited into this kingdom. And this kingdom is a glimpse of the future glory of heaven. And the way that Jesus lived among the broken and the hurting and among those who had no resemblance of a life of faith or, or morals or anything, he welcomed them to the table and demonstrated his love and compassion. And he invited them into a new kind of kingdom. One that was smack dab in the middle of culture. In the middle of a broken and hurting world. It was right there. And it was radical, and it was countercultural. And Jesus said, hey, if you follow me, and you be a part of this kingdom, the world's going to hate you for it. Yes! But we want to say, no, 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 Jesus, we want everyone, we don't want to be hated. I don't want to be hated. I don't want people to attack me on Twitter or Instagram or any of those things. I don't want that. And Jesus said, oh, if you live for me, they're going to. But guess what? You get to be a part of this new kingdom. This kingdom of God that's right in the middle of a broken world. And you're going to give a glimpse of the way things should be. See, because we still are longing for things to be made right once and for all. I'm still longing for Jesus to come and to say, okay, time's up. My kingdom now is fully here. Because we live in what we call the now and the not yet. The now is we have a glimpse of the kingdom of God. We're living in it, but it's not fully realized. We're waiting for that. We're longing for that. We read the rest of scripture. We get a picture of it in the book of, Reve- book of Revelation. But now we are the kingdom of God here for the world to see. And we are called to be different. We are called to be light in a broken world. And guess what? This light, though, is compelling even to those who don't like Jesus. That's where we're invited to. You know, it's interesting, even as we were talking as a teaching team about the series, and one thing we recognize that even if things are going as good as they possibly could, Christmas is a great memory for you. It's your favorite time of year. And it is one of my, it is my favorite time of year. I love this time of year. Some of the songs make it hard, but a lot of the songs are good. But even when everything is right, there's still a long in our hearts for more. I was just thinking, uh, my wife and I, we just got back from our vacation celebrating 25 years of marriage, and, and I think, I'm so grateful for my wife. And we've had 25 years, mostly really great years of marriage. There's been some hard bumps along the road. Anyone who's been married more than a week knows that, right? <laughs> but after 25 years, I think, man, it really is good. But you know what? This is not the ultimate fulfillment. A great marriage, a great relationship will never take the place of what Jesus intends to be for us. And we sell people short when we think that is. 
We sell our, our single people short. When we say, oh, once you're married, you're gonna have all that. No, you're not gonna be fulfilled. Jesus will fulfill you. Marriage can be good, but Jesus is the one we're gonna long for. It's just a glimpse, a little glimmer of what future in heaven will be like when all of our needs are being met. We still, even in the midst of this, live in pain. We know some of you, this Christmas, it's a hard one. People in our own church have lost spouses this year. Just got a word, and he, he gave me permission to share, but Pastor Jonathan, his father, passed away yesterday, kind of unexpectedly. We kind of texted back and forth this morning, and he's like, oh, it's just really hard. We want to be a church that comes around, I mean, all of a sudden, holidays, really? Thanksgiving weekend? It can bring up hard things. It's a reminder that brokenness of the world, we're still not where we ultimately are longing for. But our hope is in Christ. Look what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. I have most of this on the screen for you. Paul writes, Romans chapter 8, verse 18, he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. In other words, all the pain we feel now, it's not to be compared with the greatness that we once will see revealed ultimately in Christ. Amen? For the eager, oh, eagerly awaiting creation waits for the revealing of the sons and the daughters of God. Let's jump down to verse 20. It says, For creation was subjected to futility in hope that creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption. So even creation feels its bondage or its slavery to corruption. Things are broken, but it will be set free into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul writes in verse 23 of Romans 8, he says, Not only this, but we also ourselves are the first, have the first fruits of the Spirit, even ourselves grown within us, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our body. In a world where things are not fully right, inside we're groaning and longing for more. We just know that the world is not as it should be. And though in the midst of that, we're invited to this life of the kingdom of God, what we're going to do as we end our time, and I'm going to invite the worship team to make their way up. One of the things uh, that we said in our, in our teaching team was this, is even if you've heard this story a thousand times before, the challenge for us is to not lose the wonder of this story. And I'm not going to challenge you and say, hey, this Christmas, make sure you remember the reason for the season, which I want to. I want to take you to a bigger challenge. This Christmas, would you fall on your knees and worship? Would you have the wonder of the story and say, God, are you serious? That in the midst of a broken world that you entered in and you invited me to this story? Would you, when we sing our songs to Jesus during the season and after, but start now, what if we turned our hearts and we actually were singing to God? What if when we said that great are you, Lord, we weren't just kind of saying, oh man, the person behind me, they're kind of off this morning. Or I wonder if I'm off. What if when we sang it with our hearts, we said, great are you, Lord. I can't believe you came down. I can't believe you did what you did. And we fell on our knees and worshiped. 
And we said, in this broken world, you've invited us to be part of the solution. And our hearts are turning to you. What if we did that? And that rhetorical what if is me challenging us as a church. Let's do that. The best of our ability, can we turn our hearts to the one who created us, who came down, who made a home for us for Christmas? Could we turn our hearts to worship in awe? As the first Christmas story, they were knocked off their feet when they heard who Jesus was. Is it so familiar that we never get knocked off our feet? So I want to invite you, would you stand? And if you're so bold, maybe even some of you want to kneel. And let's turn our hearts to one last song. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much. We thank you, Lord, that as our Savior, you came. You came into a world that was broken. But Lord, you came to be the solution. And and it wasn't one to just have us escape. It was one for us to be invited in, to be a part of this new kind of kingdom. And Lord, you put up with us, you put up with me time and time again, falling short of you. And yet you forgive and you forgive and you don't remember my wrongdoings and you invite me into this over and over again. And for everyone in this room, you invite us into the story. God, we want to turn our hearts and worship you as they did in the early church, as they did in the first Christmas story. God, they were knocked off their feet. Lord, knock us off our feet this Christmas season. Remind us who it is we sing to. We are so grateful that you stepped into our darkness. And I pray that, Lord, this season, would you open our eyes and let us see. Lord, let us see your kingdom that's at hand. Let us live in that kingdom. Lord, with this new way of living that doesn't match the world. Lord, that gives hope, it gives healing, it gives peace, it gives that justice that only you can give in your kingdom. And Lord, I pray for our brothers and sisters today who are hurting during this season. I looked at my brother, Pastor Jonathan and Debbie and his family right now. He's grieving of the new news of losing his father. Would you just be the peace that passes all understanding in his life? For all the others of us who are here today who are coming with those hurts and those pains and those questions, God, would you meet us in that? We know you're present. Help us be aware. Now as we go, brothers and sisters of Christ, may you go knowing that you are sons and daughters of God. Go now in the power of the Spirit who lives in you because of what Jesus has done.